Hello, and welcome to Economics for Rebels, the podcast of the European Society for Ecological Economics. Up until recently, it was an act of rebellion to pursue economics as if nature mattered and the earth was finite. This rebellion must bring a major shift to economic thinking. Our podcast is dedicated to exploring the economics of just and sustainable transformations in conversations with scientists, experts, activists, pushing for rapid and radical change for people and planet. Welcome to our podcast. I'm today's host, Sofutsu Amgassen, and you're listening to the Economics for Rebels podcast. The fundamental purpose of ecological economics is to deliver an economy that achieves high living standards for all within the constraints of the Earth system. Uh, there is arguably no economic sector which is more consequential for this vision than the food system. And perhaps the greatest sustainability challenge of the coming decades is the question of how to deliver quality nutrition for all whilst minimizing the biodiversity and carbon impacts of one of the world's most ecologically impactful sectors. We're very lucky to have Dr. Mike Clark to join us today as our guide through the ecological economics of food. Mike is Senior Researcher of Sustainable Food Solutions at the University of Oxford's Smith School of Enterprise in the Environment and the Director of the Sustainable Food Solutions Programme. And he was a member of the highly influential Eat Lancet Commission investigating the health implications of various diets. Mike has spent the last decade researching the ecological and health impacts of the global food system and modelling the role innovation and changes in culture and diet can play in achieving food security and ecological goals. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Service, thanks for having me today. So, Mike, let's start by outlining just how important the food system is for achieving global sustainability goals. What are the macro level trends that will affect the ecological impacts of food systems over the coming decades? Yeah, that's a great question. So I like to start thinking back towards the drivers of these trends. And at a very broad global level, admittedly, but with a lot of nuance underlying this, there's a general trend that people are eating more food in general, more meat in specific, and then that being combined with population growth means that food production and food consumption globally is increasing quite rapidly. So if you go backwards, take a little bit of a historical perspective to start off. What's been happening since 1960 is that global per capita food consumption, which is being measured as the amount of food being brought into the household, has increased from about 21 to 2200 calories per person per day, up to about 2900 in 2019, I believe. So it's been a pretty rapid increase. Again, this is a global average, but pretty rapid increase over the past few decades. And if you look at the correlates of that, one really major trend and driver between essentially food consumption, why that's happening, is that there's a tight correlation between per capita consumption and per capita GDP. So in essence, again, it's a lot more nuanced than this, but in essence, it's generally that people have more money and they consume more food. And in particular, they consume more meat, more dairy, more eggs, and more sugar. One thing to acknowledge, though, is that this change is happening in different rates in different places. And so there's a pretty large uh, call it disparity, call it a separation between high-income and low-income populations. And so there's this really nifty uh, website put on by National Geographic called What the World Eats that has nice visualizations of how diets have changed from 1961 to 2010 on a country-by-country basis, and I highly recommend looking at that. But to describe it without a visualization at hand, generally what's happening is that the transitions in middle and high-income countries have been relatively quick over the past 50 years. And these diet transitions in low-income countries have been either very slow or non-existent. And so what you can do then is you can have this general examination of saying, how have 
recent and historic dietary transitions been correlated against per capita GDP? And then say, if these associations remain constant and keep going forward into the future, then what are diets going to look like in 20 or 30 or 40 years? So if you do that, there's been a series of papers saying, how are diets going to change? Again, very broadly, it's more food in general, more meat, more dairy, more eggs. And if you look at what that means for agricultural production, these papers estimate a roughly 50 to 80% increase in agricultural production by 2050. And so that's a really rapid increase. And the really interesting aspect of this is if you decompose this into the direct production of food that people can consume, as opposed to the consumption of food that is then fed to livestock, is that globally the direct consumption of food has remained, it's increasing a little bit, but is generally made a little bit constant. But the consumption and production of feed has more than doubled. So have we got a sense of the magnitude of these impacts on global sustainability goals? Yeah, we have a pretty decent idea globally. And for some environmental outcomes, biodiversity, water, land, we have quite a good idea both globally and locally. Um, in short, there's no way to sugarcoat this, and I don't think we should, but there's ways that we can improve, which we'll talk about later. Uh, right now, we're not in an ideal situation. And so if you look at the current impacts of food systems, and focus on each of those outcomes. Right now, food system is arguably the largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. So current estimates put uh, the global food system at about 30 to 35% of global greenhouse gas emissions. If you look at biodiversity loss, food production, specifically agricultural land degradation and agricultural land expansion is the leading source of biodiversity loss. Uh, depending on the estimate, if you look at fresh water, it's between 70 to 90% of fresh water use globally is used for agricultural irrigation. You can keep going down the indicators and environmental outcomes, nutrient pollution from either phosphorus or nitrogen fertilizers, again, agriculture's leading source. So right now we're kind of at this key point where we know food is a really large determinant, really large driver of these global sustainability goals. But we need to think about how to kind of reorient and rethink food to make it align with the SDGs or the planetary boundaries or the Paris Climate Agreement, for instance. Yeah, wow. Okay, so this is huge impacts. And so is the food system efficient at delivering adequate nutrition to end consumers? Uh, short answer again is no, but I think it's good to remain maybe not optimistic, but good to reiterate that we're also in a much better place than we, all, than we really have been before. And so right now, if you look at food insecurity, which is defined as inconsistent access or affordability or certain other components of essentially availability of food, it's right now globally over 800 million people are food insecure. And if you look at hidden hunger, so that's generally nutrient deficiencies that aren't always super apparent and easy to visualize. The current estimate is about 3 billion people have hidden micronutrient deficiencies, deficiencies at some point throughout the year. These have also increased a little bit over the last few years between COVID, the war in UK, and the cost of living. But again, this is, even though those numbers are quite big and it's alarming that 800 million to 3 billion people are either food secure or don't have access to the right types of food, it's important to note that we're actually doing better than we have before. Yeah, I think that's about the best way of putting it. It's not good at delivering food to the people that need it, but we're doing better than we ever have been. Okay, so what is the uh, the kind of health impacts of these dietary transitions? So it's clear that global diets are in transition, but are we converging on like diets that are optimal for our health? 
In short, no. But the so again, at a global level, we have this general transition towards more food in general, more meat, more dairy, more eggs, more processed foods. And so these are transitions towards quote unquote bad foods. And again, no food is inherently bad because it depends on the context in which it's consumed, the context of all the other foods that are being consumed in the diet. But in general, I don't think that many people would argue that eating more sugar is particularly healthy, that eating more processed foods is particularly healthy, that eating more calories when you already have, at least in places like the UK and the US, already consume enough calories is particularly healthy. And so, again, at a global scale, these diet transitions are being associated with increased rates of uh, generally things like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and other diseases that we know are associated with our dietary patterns. There's also this regionality that we need to be concerned about. And so if you look at the, again, very broadly, this isn't always the best way of framing it, but just to get the idea across, there's generally a split between high income, middle income, and low income in terms of the health impacts of these dietary transitions. In high income countries, these transitions seem to be not in every place, but seem to be very slowly reversing towards potentially healthier outcomes. And so in the UK, if you look at that as a singular case study, there's been a roughly 18% decrease in meat consumption in the last few decades. This trend seems likely to be mirrored elsewhere in the EU as acceptability of alternative proteins, meat-based analogs, and equivalents seems to be increasing. And the reason why I'm pointing out this meat consumption is, again, no food is inherently bad, but we do know that excess consumption of red meat, so things like pork, beef, lamb, and processed meats, so bacon, sausages, so on, are known to be associated with poor health outcomes. If you look at more middle-income countries, so things, so countries that are becoming uh, either more affluent and just starting to have that transition towards more meat-based diets, the health impacts of these dietary transitions are becoming actually quite scary. There's a really big uptick in things like diabetes and obesity, uh, likely in the next few years, possibly an uptick in cancer. And so that's kind of transition between high-income countries where these health outcomes aren't good, but they don't seem to be getting a huge amount worse, at least from the diet perspective, towards the middle-income countries where they are starting to get worse and get worse quite rapidly. And then at the entire flip side of the story, there's it's actually really it's really unfortunate because in many cases the countries that are least affluent, so what we would call low and middle-income countries, or specifically low-income countries, it's kind of a split story here. It's some countries are actually having continued shortages of food where the health outcomes associated with dietary patterns are actually from food inaccessibility. So people not eating enough, just not eating enough full stop. And even beyond that, just not getting enough of specific nutrients, specifically iron, sometimes vitamin A, sometimes vitamin C, depending on where you are. And then in some other low and low middle income countries, you actually have this really rapid diet transition towards very meat-based diets, very processed diets, and so on, where it's those health outcomes may not be, may not have been felt yet, but they're likely to be felt in a few years. The important thing to note about this is that, again, I put this in the context of, again, very broad brushstrokes to get the idea across, but put this in the context of high income versus middle income versus low income countries. But what's really been happening is that the less affluent countries are following the same patterns that we ourselves have followed in the UK and the US and Canada and Australia. And so it isn't a story of they're doing bad that we have never done. It's more a story of they're just undergoing these transitions that we did decades ago. So those low and 
middle-income countries are converging towards the kinds of diets that we might have had several years ago, and we are now reverting towards uh, sort of less materially intensive diets? In some countries, yes. I think that's a very good way of putting it. It's These diets are converging towards a huge amount of food, large quantities of meat, large quantities of dairy and egg. And again, there are going to be exceptions to this. The UK, as I said before, meat consumption seems to be decreasing a little bit. In other countries, meat consumption may never increase because of religious and cultural regions. But overall, diets globally seem to be converging towards excess consumption of calories, full stop, and high quantities of animal-based foods. Yeah, and just really quickly, so why is it that we focus so heavily on meat consumption as a kind of proxy for environmental impact and nutritional issues? Yeah, so there are two parts of this. And so I think you said it quite well. So the environmental aspect is if you look at the environmental impacts per unit of food produced, this is evidence coming from analyses that are called life cycle analyses, which says if you reduce this type of, in our case, food in this type of production system, what's the climate impact? What's the water impact? What's the land impact of doing that? And so one of our colleagues at Oxford, whose name is Joseph Poor, collected data from about 38,000 food production systems. And what has essentially one of the abundantly clear findings is that meat production has much larger environmental impacts than does production of just about any plant-based food. And if you take that to a slightly more extreme, one of the, I think, more powerful findings that often gets ignored is that even the more most efficient type of meat production system still has higher impacts than the least efficient type of plant-based production system. From the nutrition perspective, again, this is one that has, there's a lot of nuance I'm not going to be able to fully communicate because this isn't my expertise, but there's kind of a split between nutrition and health. And so nutrition is how much iron, how many calories, how much energy, how much fiber, how much so on is in this piece of food. And from that nutrition perspective, we know that meat and specifically red meat can often be very nutrient dense. And in some countries that either don't have access to enough food or are missing certain nutrients, specifically things like iron and folate and vitamin B12, which are found in quite large densities in meat-based foods, is that one of the general ideas is that having meat is a way to be nutrition secure in places that are generally food insecure. On the flip side, in terms of those health outcomes, where it becomes complicated is that consuming too much, in this case, too much red meat, so again, things like pork, ruminant meat, beef, sheep, goat, or too much processed meat, bacon, sausage, ham, so on, then starts becoming associated with diet-related disease. And those are things like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and so on. And so... Yeah, the point that you make is absolutely fantastic because we often focus on meat because it's one of the easiest ways to communicate saying meat has high impacts for environment compared to alternatives. Meat is often associated with poor health outcomes, but it's also just one very small subset of the entire food system. And we need to focus on the entire food system, which meat is only a small part of it. Um, and it's not just that the health impacts of food that we consume, they're actually important. Um, agriculture also has these kind of wider health impacts through some of the wider impacts of production processes. Um, so I'm especially curious about some of your work on fine particulate matter uh, from agriculture. So what kind of health impacts do um, these kind of production methods have? And do you mind going into a bit of detail about how we can empirically estimate these kind of impacts? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So just, just to flag this, this is research that was led by 
uh, Jason Hill, Nino Domingo, and a few people from their lab group at University of Minnesota. And I was just uh, fortunate to be brought into their research after they'd done most of it. So uh, yeah, I'm getting honors for something that they mostly led. The point that you make is that there isn't only this direct link between food consumption and health outcomes, but there's also this indirect link between food production and health outcomes via air pollution. And so right now, environmental air pollution is one of the leading sources of poor health. And a really good example of this is like asthma, specifically inner cities with smog. And if you decompose environmental air pollution, it's agricultural production practices is the leading source of environmental air pollution globally and in most countries. And so the reason why this happens and the reason why environmental air pollution is a source of poor health is because of the release of fine particulate matter. And fine particulate matter is generally uh, very small particles in the air that are small enough to get into our lungs. If you look at the sources of particulate matter from agriculture, this is caused by a variety of activities such as fertilizer application, which then that fertilizer is volatilized into a specific type of particulate matter, which is known to be bad for our health. You have similar links between manure management then being volatilized into compounds that are bad for our health. Tilling soil releases dust into the air and so on. So there are a variety of sources of uh, particulate matter and air pollution that result from agricultural practices. We can, the way that we've understood and tried to investigate the health impact of air pollution resulting from agriculture is kind of a three-step process. So the first is going into epidemiological research, which says among people and among populations that have been exposed to different levels of air pollution, what is their health impact? So it's essentially saying in populations that don't have or that aren't exposed to large quantities of air pollution, they have this health outcome. If they have moderate amounts of exposure to air pollution, there's this health outcome and so on. So it gives you a dose-response relationship which says per additional amount of air pollution you experience, here's the health outcome associated with that additional amount of air pollution. So that's the first step. The second step is then saying, what are the sources of air pollution in agriculture and how are those spatially? So it isn't just there's particulate matter, there's fertilizer application, but saying in the US there's a lot of fertilizer application results in particular matter pollution in the Midwest of US from corn production. So it's saying, where are the sources of air pollution on a very fine spatial scale? And then the third part is saying, okay, great, based on where those sources of potential air pollution are occurring, how do those then get into the atmosphere? How do they travel downwind to population centers? And then that leaps you back to that first part of evidence saying, based on the air pollution from farming that gets to population centers, what's potential health outcomes? of that air pollution from agriculture that in many cases can occur halfway across the country. That's absolutely incredible. I just had no idea that there were these kind of like long distance telecouplings between agriculture and health. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. It's just another illustration of how kind of complex an international food supply chain is. And so like one of these analyses was looking specifically at the US and there's this really interesting, if you want to decompose it, it's kind of a really interesting split between impacts production and where those health impacts are actually felt. And unsurprisingly, the sources of air pollution are centered around essentially the Corn Belt in the US, the Midwest, and a few other places. But the hotspots of health outcomes are in urban centers, so sometimes Chicago or New York or other cities on the East Coast, which are downwind and sometimes a few thousand miles or a thousand miles away from that source of emissions. 
And so again, that's focusing on the US, but you'll have similar, and I think where it becomes potentially complicated, but also interesting is that air pollution doesn't really respect international borders. And so then you start getting these international discussions going on saying, hey, look, you're emitting particulate matter from your agricultural practices, which are hurting our population centers. What then do you start thinking about in terms of international treaties? Do you want to go that direction? And so it just gets, yeah, really interesting, really complicated. And that is by no means my area of expertise, but I think it's a nifty question that uh, people can start asking. I kind of love the uh, mental image of air pollution that did respect international borders. It's kind of great. Thanks so much, Mike. So we've we've covered the big picture, scary stuff about the the, the biodiversity, um, the, the land use, the sustainability and health impacts of the, the global agricultural system. But one of the things that I've really admired in your work is how much time you spend on actual solutions, both big picture stuff, but also specific mechanisms. Uh, so let's let's dig in. If we allow diets to change as projected, is there any sense of how far uh, agricultural innovation alone can mitigate the impacts of food? Uh, short answer is it can help. And so I'll take a step back before really diving into this. So as a kind of quick reminder, a quick refresher, if diets continue the way that they are projected to over the next 30 years, the I'll just focus on climate real quick because the story is generally similar for land and water and biodiversity. The climate impacts of food systems or production, consumption, everything in between are projected to increase by about 50 to 80% by 2050. And if you pair those emissions from the food system and put them in the context of the 1.5C and 2C targets, what this means is that food systems alone are going to prevent us from achieving the 1.5C target within the next 30 to 40 years. And so in terms of those levers that we can pull to reduce these emissions, the efficiency of agricultural production, where efficiency in this case is either how much food do you produce on a given amount of land? So it's essentially saying, can we increase crop yields? Or alternatively, the second aspect of it is how few greenhouse gas emissions can we produce per unit of food? And so if you look at that efficiency lever, there are a lot of ways to improve it. It could be uh, things like better fertilizer application, better fertilizer management, integrated pest management, uh, novel technologies such as upcoming potential photosynthesis, uh, biomodifications that people are just talking about. So there are a lot of ways of achieving these efficiencies, but the one really consistent message coming out of it is that under a best of the best of the best case scenario is that these potential improvements in efficiency might reduce food system emissions by about 25 to 40%. And that's under the assumption that everything works as well as we possibly think it is. It's implemented at a scale that's never been before tested, and it remains economically efficient enough to implement these solutions at, uh, in this case, a global scale. So it could be a really important lever, but there are questions about how much it can actually do. The really interesting thing, too, is that when you start looking across environmental outcomes, so say like land versus water versus climate versus biodiversity, is that these, uh, call it like the efficiency lever or the innovation lever, becomes not super effective and not super important for climate and water, not super important for crop yields globally, but in some cases it could be super, like really, really important, especially in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, where yields are generally much lower than what they could be. That's in some cases due to knowledge, but in many cases due to lack of fertilizer, lack of technology. But when you start looking at 
the more nutrient pollution aspect of this. So nitrogen loading, eutrophication, acidification, is that that's where the technological innovation can actually be hugely effective. And sometimes potentially upwards to the order of about 50% reduction to 60% reduction. And that's, again, I know I just said for climate, this efficiency lever at a best case scenario may not be super good. But for nutrient management aspect of the whole food system equation, the reason why it might be hugely effective is because there's currently a incentive structure to over-apply fertilizer applications. And if you can figure out how to both remove that incentive, incentive structure, but also give either farmers or individuals technology, say, how do you apply these fertilizers either at better times where your crop needs it or use different fertilizers that release their nutrients over a long time period. Is that from that fertilizer application perspective, it can be really, really beneficial for nutrient pollution. Okay, so um, if agricultural innovation alone isn't enough to, to achieve our sustainability goals, it sounds like we've got to address that, that tricky old issue of dealing with the social and political dynamics of, of cultural and dietary change. So what role can dietary change play in achieving sustainability goals? Yeah, so that's an absolutely brilliant question. So in short, in the context of food systems, dietary transitions towards diets that contain mostly plants, such as whole grains, legumes, nuts, pulses, so on, and a small to moderate amount of meat, dairy, and eggs is potentially one of the most effective climate solutions and environmental solutions that we have. And so if you look at this on a global scale, it's these transitions towards mostly plant-based, so not vegetarian, not vegan diets, but mostly plant-based diets could reduce the food systems and environmental impacts by 50 to 80%. And so it's not a small lever by any means. It's, and again, this is not saying that innovation is not important. It's not saying that reducing food loss and waste is not important because right now food loss and waste accounts for about 8 to 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And so diet and innovation and food loss and waste is all super important. But there's a huge amount of evidence from models, from empirical surveys, from so on, that if we are going to be serious about meeting climate targets, about meeting biodiversity targets, about meeting water targets, about meeting the SDG targets in the broadest sense, is that if we don't start having a really meaty and serious discussion about uh, the foods that we eat, then, and specifically the diets that we're eating, that we're not going to meet these targets in any way that we want to. The point that you made about the tricky, <laughs> the tricky issues of social and political and cultural context of food consumption is, I think, where it gets really interesting. And we can talk about that more later, but it's basically the point that we're right now in the context of like food system research is we have a very good idea of the direction of change that we need to be thinking about. So it's generally taking current diets, eating fewer calories in general. Again, this is a global scale. There can be different transitions, different places to make sure everybody's eating a healthy and nutritious and affordable and sustainable diet. But at a global scale, it's generally eating fewer calories, in general, a lot less meat, dairy, and eggs. That's kind of the direction we want to be thinking about going, but we have no idea of how to actually get people to move that direction. And so it becomes a really sticky and interesting sticking point because we say, here's where we should be thinking about going, but we have no idea on how to get there. 
but you've done a, a fair bit of work. You and your colleagues have done a fair bit of work on uh, how we could potentially incentivize or, or drive these kind of cultural changes. Um, so, do you mind elaborating a little bit on the kinds of solutions that we can implement to get there? And let, let me we can start with the, the obvious and the, the easy political wins, um, and then I'll probably push back and, and ask for the more utopian stuff too. Yeah, perfect. Absolutely. So, yeah, and yeah, you make the good point. So Rachel Pesci's group out of the uh, Department of Primary Healthcare Services has been doing fantastic look at or fantastic work into how do you actually incentivize people to make these transitions towards more sustainable diets. And so sustainable in this case is focusing on environment and nutrition. It's not looking at the economic or cultural or social aspects of sustainability that are also very important. And their work has been focusing mostly on information communication, specifically in the context of eco-labels. And so essentially what this is saying is if you provide uh, individuals or corporations or different types of food system stakeholders information on the impacts of the foods that they're either purchasing or selling or sourcing or trading, then how do they shift their behaviors or do they even shift their behaviors towards more sustainable options? And on the eco-label perspective, focusing on consumers, the consistent theme out of four or five research papers so far has been, um, unfortunately, that they don't seem to be super effective. So it's like a one to two, one to three percent de- reduction in the environmental impacts of the average food that a person consumes or that a person pur- purchases. And so, like, they kind of work, but a one percent shift in the sustainability of a person purchasing is not anywhere close to the fifty to sixty to seventy percent reduction that we actually need. We're starting to think about other behavioral mechanisms because eco-labels are really just kind of the foundation of a huge amount of other experiments that you can run. And so these other ones could include things like um, diet swaps, the location of foods in a store or foods on a website. So essentially the order of inpatient that you get it and a variety of other things. And so we're only just exploring those. But in terms of that like nudge perspective, so not the heavy-handed, let's tax everything approach. But in terms of this nudge perspective, what we found is that they don't seem to work super well, at least when targeting consumers. And so I'll follow on that targeting consumers point for a second. What we need to think about, and maybe somebody's doing this if they are, I'm not aware of it, wouldn't be surprising if that's the case, but what we need to think about doing is how do you also communicate this information to producers and corporations and governments and civil servants and organizations so that they also start making changes in their operations? Because again, this whole sustainability knot that we're in isn't just a issue of consumer choice. It's also an issue of uh, corporations are making choices that may not be the most sustainable. Governments are making choices that may not be the most sustainable. And so to really summarize that very roundabout answer we've done some work on that consumer angle of how do you give consumers more or how do you how do you give consumers environmental information on the food products they engage with so that they can make more sustainable decisions but we haven't done the similar type of behavioral research on how do you give corporations that information how do you give government that information how do you give organizations that information so what we've done the consumer oriented aspect of these behavioral studies doesn't seem to be super effective but that doesn't mean to say that providing that information to corporations that have this uh, environmental and social governance reporting and various other mandates to disclose how they're doing environmentally and socially, it doesn't mean to say that that type of information isn't going to be effective at shifting, uh, say, like Tesco's behaviors, for instance. 
Okay, so it sounds like the kind of the, the nudge perspective, the most politically feasible options uh, just don't, they barely make a dent in the, the directionality of change that we need to see. So what other kinds of more utopian policy perspectives might you have? Oh, boy. I mean, I can go with the dystopian ones. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so there's there's always a question about taxes and subsidies. And so I wouldn't inherently say that those are dystopian or utopian, but the monetary aspect is a really big angle. And so there's been a little bit of research by Cameron Hepburn and Marcus Bringman and various other research groups saying if you tax food, specifically foods that are high in impact for either environment or health, then how that how might that shift behaviors towards essentially more sustainable and more nutritious and healthier foods? Uh, again, the story is a little bit more, I guess, depending on the perspective of taxes and subsidies, the story is a little bit more heartwarming than these nudge-based approaches. They seem to be more effective. And if you introduce them, them in the context of a Peguvian tax where you uh, introduce taxes on things like red meat, which have not great impacts on climate and are associated with poor health outcomes, and then use that to subsidize the cost of fruits and veg, that that seems like it could be an effective way of shifting behaviors towards more sustainable, more nutritious, more healthy outcomes. But then it gets to the question of, do we actually have political will to do that? The one thing I'd like to iterate and reiterate though, is that in the context of these discussions on, like in this case, food policy, we always focus on the new policies that we're discussing. So in this case, do we want to tax red meat? Do we want to introduce eco-labels? Do we want to do X, Y, Z to promote more sustainable behaviors? But what we consistently forget are the hundreds, if not thousands of policies that are already in place that have gotten us to where we are right now. And so in some cases, it isn't a question of what do we want to implement in addition to what we already have, but it may be a discussion of what policies do we need to get rid of that we already have because they have gotten us to a place that isn't healthy, is not sustainable, is not nutritious, is not affordable. And what kinds of policies are you talking about there? Uh, it could be agricultural subsidies, for instance. And so the UK right now is going from, uh, say, process-based to outcome-based policies in the environmental land management scheme. In the US, there's a lot of incentive to over-apply fertilizers to produce corn and dairy just because there's a guaranteed price on them. And so it could be subsidy schemes. It could be things like advertisement. It could be various other things. I'm by no means a policy expert, but it's more just to iterate that in many cases, when we're talking about making these changes through a policy mechanism, it isn't only what additional policies do we want to implement, but it may partially, again, be what policies that are in place should we think about nixing. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, Mike, this has been an absolute tour de force of food system sustainability and its health impacts. I can't thank you enough for your time. So for the final question, we ask all our guests, what is your rebellion? Uh, yeah, so I cycle, run, walk everywhere just about where I can. Um, take public transit to other places. The one uh, <laughs> exception to this is I'm is when I'm trying to get to family. So my family lives in California and I'm currently in the UK. So uh, yeah, cycling, running and walking there is a little bit complicated. Thanks so much to Dr. Mike Clark for, for sharing his wisdom with us. And thanks to all of you for spending time with us. Thank you, Sophis, for having me. Thank you for listening to the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. If you like the conversation and your work is related to ecological economics in any discipline, consider becoming a member of our society to stay connected. If you are ready to discuss the topic, join our Facebook group called European Society for Ecological Economics.